Eto Eto as a bobana Eto Eto as a bobana Eto Abawodo Eto as a bobana Eto Abawodo Eto as a bobana My name is Quirky Act uh, my name is uh, Kweku Acht, and I am an artist. And my mum calls me the Brown Englishman, but she said I gave myself that name when I was small. I was walking around saying, I'm the Brown Englishman, I'm the Brown Englishman. Is a global dance I grew up quite clear that I'm different. <laughs> when I first met Kweku, he made a throwaway comment about growing up surrounded by a loud Irish family. And my inner third culture radar started pinging. See, Kweku is black, and his name told me he was Ghanaian. So where did his Irish heritage come from? So many of us mixed up hybrid people grow up balancing contradictions. We bounce between families, celebrating Eid with one and Hanukkah with another. We visit one auntie who gives us grief for not yet being married and visit a different uncle who grills us on our career prospects. It can be hard and hilarious to manage the different expectations and relationships when our families can be so different. But for Kweku, the difference between his families is more stark than for most. He grew up in one, not meeting the other part of his family until much later in life. So what is it like to make sense of who you are when only half of the recipe that cooked you up is available? I'm Naima Sakande, and this is Third Culture. My primary school, um, I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere. There was no other black kids at all. Um, I don't know if any black kids or black people had really gone to that area, so I was a bit of an alien. And um, I remember the first day at school, it was a small village primary school, but all of them wanted to touch my hair. So I think it was quite horrific, <laughs> scary moment, you know, so I suddenly became a celebrity and then also somebody to kind of, you know, stare at and be kind of curious about. And um, yeah, I remember feeling a little bit freaked out by the situation. My physical identity was made a point of a lot. I think that at school I remember this girl telling me that, oh, you, you obviously don't wash, that's why your skin is that colour, and you, I hear that black people use vinegar to wash their hair, and, you know, and my mum was a bruiser. <laughs> so she's just like, you know what, if anyone gives you any trouble, you make sure you give them two thumbs, because they need to know that you, are, you need to be respected. You know, she was great like that. And um, for her, she could not understand anyone who would give up a child. My mum was from Ghana and was over in um, the UK studying and then working. Uh, and then, here, hello, here I came, popped out. And um, she was really clear that she was in a position to raise me, looked for somebody to take care of me. And um, she was at the, at the time living in some housing where she was given the details and name of a lady that they call, that everyone was calling mum. And, um, and that was Pat, that was the lady who ended up being my foster mum. Um, and so my mum was here until 83, so I was five when she went back to Ghana. And then I didn't hear from her for, wow, like 15 years. 
the story goes that she went to see Pat and she brought me, she told her to bring me along. Pat saw me, she said, yeah, this kid, bring him. <laughs> and that was it, it became, Pat became my mum. I think I felt an instant connection to Kwaku because talking to him was like looking in a mirror. We are both half West African and half European, but in totally different ways. Well, my heritage comes from having parents from different places, my mum is from the UK and my dad is from Burkina Faso, Kwaku's comes from being brought up outside of his birth family. Growing up, I always felt that despite often being the only mixed-race family for miles, having both my parents around meant there was almost like an instruction booklet for my brother and I. You know, black dad plus white mum equals mixed kids. It was comforting knowing that if we were all out together, even if we stuck out, we at least made sense. It was one of the things I really struggled with after my parents split up. Once they weren't together anymore, I became acutely aware of how my brother and I were the only people of our colour in the whole family. And Kwaku grew up as a black boy in a white family. His instruction booklet was half a continent away in Ghana, and so he was constantly trying to make sense of who he was. Between 10 months and 5, I had contact with my mum. So I would go to Liverpool from Kent where we were living and then go and see her and um, I remember those times I remember the confusion over food you know the eating food maybe some Gary or something with my hands and then coming over and trying home and trying that with um, potato and then getting a real clip around the ear don't play with your food and then up there getting laughed at for not being able to eat with my hands you know these kind of crazy (laughs) cross-cultural misdemeanors my foster mum and foster dad both had previous marriages. So my foster dad through his previous marriage had three children and my foster mum through her previous marriage had seven surviving children but gave birth to nine children. So in total there were ten siblings that grew up as siblings. So the house was always full of of (laughs) family members and um, I would be like, you know, depending on who came I'd either be the babysitter or we'd be like mates or brothers and sisters and it would be like cool make a cup of tea cool make a cup of tea and i would be making seven ten fifteen cups of tea at a time but my mom and pat is was classic um i guess in the in the colloquial language was called ghetto girl you know she was serious in each sentence there would have to be a swear word um my friends all loved her because she was so straight talking she was like fighting with the boys you know she would be sort of like if you took stepped out of line she'll give you a smack you know like so she was colorful to say the least but in terms of Africanness, I think that, um, yeah, I got really curious when I met with Delamba and Valerie. They were my friends who were Ghanaian because they connected me with hair products. Because my mum used to cut my hair really, really badly. <laughs> and then, um, you know, just to take it off, take it all off. And um, I was obviously getting to my teens. I wanted a flat top, I wanted to S curl, I wanted to do different stuff with it. Origin, Africa, Sub-Saharan, Africa. Symbolism, power, aesthetic, culture, the fabric, the colour, multiple styles and structure, exquisite uniqueness, I express the poise and demeanour of an African empress. And when I got to 16, I was at Aylesbury College, there was a, there was a hairdressing uh, course 
and there were Jamaican boys on the hairdressing course who did barbering for a discount because they were students. And so I remember going to their barbershop and um, them doing the linings in my head and my head was so dry and it would make my head bleed because I didn't have I hadn't cleaned my skin properly, you know, and it was just crazy, like all this stuff. And they were like, you know, you try scalp, picky head. They were really, you know, kind of vocal. And obviously, I remember feeling really bad by the time I left the hair bar the barbers because, you know, I felt like, wow, I'm just completely out of it. You know, like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Great hairstyle. I was always... <laughs> <laughs> they did a great job, but yeah, I had to go yeah, through yeah. trauma to get there. These stories hit close to home for me. As a kid, my skin used to get so dry, it would sometimes crack and bleed on my shoulders because I didn't know how important it was to moisturise. My family still calls it getting crocodile skin because of the scaly lines that would draw themselves across my body. And hair. Oh, Lord, don't get me started on hair. I've, I've had hair woes a mile long from wow. growing up because I've always said, like, if my mum was black and not my dad, I could do a whole episode on this topic alone. I wore it scraped back into the tightest bun that I could. And maybe I will one day. Why is black hair always such a point of identity? Listen, I'm telling Batik, you, I'm interested in silk, kente, wax, turban, gele. Nefertiti, Baldy, Locks, Fro, Braids, Weave, Wig, Perm, Twiggy, Pony, Weave, Wig, Perm. And it really makes me think, if you aren't learning about these things from your family, where do you pick them up? For me, it was through failed experiments and YouTube tutorials, but for Kwaku, it was through his Ghanaian friends. And it was experiences like these that built a lot of curiosity about who his birth mother was. In my head, I was going to go and look for her when I was 25. For some reason, 25 was the year. Uh, and I didn't make it to 20 before I got a call on my telephone um, from uh, a, a girl I was living with before. She called me up and was like, um, I'm calling because I'm also a mum and I wouldn't keep this from you. And I thought, that's very cryptic. And then she said, your mum's been trying to contact you, I have a letter here from your mum. And I was like, I almost dropped. Oh gosh, I mean, seriously, I, I, I really, physiolo physiologically, I almost passed out. Like I became dizzy. I was, I remember being in the kitchen in my flat. And um, yeah, I just remember holding on to the side <laughs> and asking Adelina, who's the girl, to repeat it again. So she used the Salvation Army search. Someone had, she'd been trying for years through, you know, prayer, through trying to get, you know, any means necessary. And apparently someone had said to her, this is the way these people are great. You know, ask them to do the search. You know, they were able to locate me down to my last address. It was um, really emotive, you know, it was powerful. And I was wanting to connect with her. So when, um, she beat me to it. I think it was, I was thrown, but I was ecstatic. I mean, I was really happy. Uh, my mum, uh, Pat, never pulled any punches. She was just like, well, she never bothered until now, blah, blah, blah. You know, like she was really quite militant about it. She, she felt that it was too late and that we had struggled, like as a family, you know, it was a very simple lifestyle. Always just about covering things. And actually a lot of time, not really lots of debts, lots of stress. Um, so I guess in a way she was kind of a little bit resentful, you know, that 
in her mind that after she'd done the work that she would show up. <laughs> so you're 19, you've gotten a letter from your mum, you're in contact, you're, you're sending letters, you're talking on the phone now. Yeah. What was it like to hear her voice? Um, she's got an amazing voice. She kind of, her nickname is Auntie Lady. No one calls her Esther, even the husband. Uh, Frederick, who calls her Lady, that's his wife, you know. So Auntie Lady is Auntie Lady. She speaks better English than me. And um, she has this warm, quite jovial voice um, and also is very articulate and clear. So in a way, complete opposite to Mum Pat, because Mum Pat was like really got the colloquialisms and the cuss words. So when did you first uh, decide that the trip to Ghana was going to happen? Um, so that's uh, 2004, uh, I was 26. So you're, you're on the plane. What is going through your mind? Ah, uh, so first of all, I was just excited to be going away. And then it was like anticipation, anxiety, like what's it going to be like? What's she going to look like? How are we going to relate? Am I going to meet my dad? I wonder what the place is like that we're going to be, I'm going to be staying. All of this. Questions, questions, yeah, questions. Yeah, just going through my head. It was serious. So who picked you up um, It was Mum and Fred. Yeah. And I remember just getting this huge warm hug. And that's my mum's thing. She just gives the best hugs. And they're looking at her face and going, I look really like you. I mean, I had photos, but seeing her face to face, it was really funny. I had a sense that I would need space. I didn't know how we would get on, if we would get on. The husband I didn't know either. So I made a decision to ask them to find me a hotel. In fact, I spent most of my time either at the house or at church because then I, that became a huge part of my understanding of my mum's life, which was the church. I remember going to church seven times in the first week I was there. That's a lot of church. <laughs> I probably went to church more in that week than I'd been in the last seven years of my life. <laughs> Your birth father. Yeah. Um, did you ever have any idea who he was growing up? No, and it's really interesting. Um, even when, like, my mum contacted me, I didn't really go into those questions about him. When I now went to Ghana, that was when I became curious, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I would actually be interested to see what this guy's about, and I'd never even seen a picture. Um, Jifa, who's my cousin was the one who actually then, her and her friend, took me to the house, my dad's house. So I remember sitting in the back of her car, and I just remember my heart was beating. I felt sick, I was, my guts were churning. I was really so nervous to go. And then um, we drove down this road, and um, Jifa said, oh, there he is. And I looked up, and this man was standing on the balcony several, several stories up. And again, my now my heart was like, D -d 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 I was like, that is your father. And then we go to get out of the car, and they said, no, wait in the car. So I was like, oh my God. And so they go inside, and they're inside for what felt like an age. And obviously having a conversation with him about, you know, what was going to go on. Now, eventually they come back out and said, come in. So we went up all these stairs and went into a room, and then he came in. And it was just the most surreal moment of my life. He sat down in front of me and he has, we have a similar way of speaking. He has this light voice which is quite inquiring and, you know, it, it was a really nice conversation initially. Like, what do you do? It's, you know, open questions. And then he left for a short while and came back and the eyes were red. I knew he had probably been to shed a tear. 
And when he came back in the room, he had changed. And now he was detached and became quite judgmental and quite sharp. And like, for example, I was sharing with him that I was into music and dance and he was like, that's a waste of time. When you get, you know, something that's going to be a career, you know, like he switched into this kind of dad mode. And I was, I didn't, I wasn't in, um, reacting in a way that would be, you know, rude or anything. But I remember just thinking, you don't have the right to, you know, I remember going into myself. It's tough at the best of times when your parents want you to be something you're not, let alone in a situation like this. But this brings up some fundamental questions for me. I often wonder who I would have been if my family had stayed in Burkina Faso and I'd been raised there. Would I still be a feminist? Would I be a practicing Muslim instead of the debatable one I am now? There is no doubt I would have been different in some way, but it's hard to know how much of who I am is intrinsically a part of me and how much is how and where I was raised. It's that classic nature versus nurture debate. And Kwaku, more than most, struggles with that question. So for me, the most surprising thing is what he chose to do next. 2011 was a transitional year for me. Um, I had what I can describe now as a meltdown. I suddenly had this this day where I just literally started to cry. And I cried to the point where I just couldn't, I couldn't control it. I think I slept and then I woke up the next morning and I had this real jolt. And I woke up and I went, I can't pay my mortgage. And in that moment, I realised I'd had all these challenges with finances, but all the way along, I'd been able to pay for the roof over my head, even though everything else was a bit challenging and I had cards and all this kind of stuff happening. That was when I realised, wow, things are really, really in a, in, in a tight spot. I was in a tight spot. And um, in 2012, however, I went to Ghana twice. In the midst of all the stuff that was going on, I actually went for a seminar and the woman speaker, who was a Ghanaian woman, she she told her story of how she'd gone to Ghana to set up her franchise of the business. And she decided that she would just leave and left her whole family and went out to Ghana and started up and started making things happen out there. And I went up to her afterwards and I said to her, I just heard your story and it was powerful. And then she looked at me in my eyes and she said, you know, you look really, really stressed. And then I told her my whole story in about five minutes. And then she said, come to Ghana. And the way she looked at me was so powerful that I just think that it sowed a seed. It had been the case of, you know, having these moments of insight while being in Ghana uh, and these experiences of feeling uh, a sense of belonging. I know there's a really strong thing. Every time I get off the plane in Ghana, you know, hitting the tropical heat and going down those stairs and then just, I mean, it doesn't even matter what the weather is. It's just, it's just a feeling I get going in, going back into, uh, into Kotoka Airport. And it feels like home. You know, so at the end of the day, it was, all these things were like, mm, you know, this is a place that kind of starts to feel really like home. And this place, although everything around me, I have all the, my UK family and my foster family who were my family, there wasn't a, uh, a base anymore. 
you know, and I very much from about a bass, you know, my little flat in Hackney was my bass. Um, and once it wasn't there, I think I'd lost that. It wasn't, in a, it wasn't even in a sort of dramatic way, it was kind of like, I feel free. So I just was like, okay, you know, and there's loads of things I could do instead. But actually the place I can go without any major um, process is to Ghana. I'm also, you know, Ghanaian. <laughs> You know, it's which, true. yeah, which it's true. was a, I guess that was the point at which I really acknowledged it. You know, it's like, wow, I can go home. So, I want to slow this down and walk this through because one of the things I always think is, okay, yeah, Burkina, I have this strong connection to, I have my family there, it's a country I care a lot about, but when I think about moving there one day or or deciding to live there it like makes my heart beat so i did you have any of those similar misgivings or or that sort of panic it felt like the time felt like the right time it flowed and even the things that were really uncomfortable and challenging felt to be part of part of it mum pat lived in buckinghamshire and um, so, you know, I wasn't seeing her all the time. And I did remember going and having the chat with her about, you know, going and moving to Ghana. And I think that on a practical level, she was kind of like, it seemed, you know, rational to her. At the same time, you, I could tell that she was really um, struggling. And I think there was, there's a big gap. And I just wonder how many cross-racial foster parents, carers have this, where stepping into the place where I'm from or where my family are from, almost could feel like a severance. You know, in a world where mum and pa does not fit or understand or know or is not part of, am I going into that and cutting ties? And then it's, and now I'm on the, on the African Ghanaian boy who's now completely reintegrated with his family and is forgotten or disconnected with everything before. The kind of feeling I, I took away was there was the kind of wanting reassurance that this is not the end, as it were, that actually I'm still the son, I'm still going to visit, I'm still going to, you know, love her and all of this stuff. Uh, and then, of course, a bit of anger and bitterness that came up about kind of like, oh, you're going to them and they weren't there for you and, you know, we were there for you and all of that. You know, and that, of course, I, I, that's mum, you know, she had that fire. I went without very much of a plan and I had a couple of hundred quid. I even missed my first flight to Ghana. And mum came to the airport with me both times, you know, tears at the airport and, oh, goodness, it was really powerful. You know, but again, she was like, you know, the time I... I, I, I missed my flight. She was just so strong. And I just thought, gosh, this woman, you know, at her age and with her condition, and I think she was walking with a stick at that time, was still there, you know, like, come on, you know, get up, you know, you're gonna do it, you know? And it, it was just, I think that even made me cry even more. So I searched my heart to see whether I'm still okay with this because I left in 2013, at the end of 2013, and mum was quite ill. I mean, she'd had a stroke. Um, she also had got cancer. And she was um, about 70, 74, 75 by this point. My friend, I remember chatting to my friend David and saying, 
whatever happens, I need to have a way of getting back quickly if there was to be something that would happen. I think I'd been there a year, I think it was 20, 2014, when I got the news. Um, my nephew, Brian, was calling and calling and calling. He called like, I think 12 times and I missed the calls. I think I was doing something, picked up the message and he called me um, and said that, you know, mum had passed away. Um, I remember just that experience in that moment of being like, wow. And I already had a ticket booked to go there the following week. So I think it was the 7th when he called and then I had a ticket for the 12th. So it was like a week I would have been there. Yeah, I was really, yeah, it was big. Um, but it was, yeah, I had the moment of kind of going through, am I okay with the fact I didn't stay? And um, yeah, I realized that although mum would have loved me around, she wanted me to be happy and really achieve. And that's kind of her main thing. She's like, go out there and do it. And she said, you know, she wanted to dance. She was supposed to be a swimmer. You know, there was these things that she wanted to do. She was wanted to set up her own cafe and, you know, have Pat's calf. You know, like a, there were all these things that she wanted to do and actually she hadn't manifested all those. And in a way, I believe that, you know, she could see in me that she'd kind of invested this time. So grandchildren, I have to have a child. I have to rock my career completely doing the things I want to do. So being out in Ghana, I think, you know, she was cool with that as long as it was a part of this journey for me to get where I needed to go. It was a beautiful funeral as well. Mum was like, oh, put me in a bag and throw me, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, just, just discard me, don't waste money. Um, I managed to get some of my performing arts friends to come. I, I had a friend of mine do a recital of, I think it was, either Pride and Prejudice or Jane Eyre, one of the classics that my mum absolutely loved. And then I did a recital and then a poem, and then we had a singer, and we let doves fly, and different people laughed and joked at her, sort of having their last two fingers up as she kind of was taken through the village on this beautiful carriage and horses, you know, and kind of like, this is kind of where Pat really needed to be. And I actually quite spiritual. I do sometimes feel her energy and presence around. And she's just like, don't you sit down. Don't you ball. Crying, she goes balling. Don't you ball. Get up. Get that stuff done. Get out there and make it happen. Go and do it. You know, that's how, you know, Pat was. You know, I think that she uh, was that constant voice of kind of be you, do you, go out there and do it, you know, and so. You know, I was like, yeah, okay, mom, I'm off. I'm right, I'm on, I'm on it. <laughs> Third Culture is produced by me, Naima Sakande, and by Martha Snow. Becky Aston is our web developer, and Jackie Lee is our designer. A lot of the music this episode was written and created by Kweku himself. He is incredibly talented. To hear some of the tracks in full and to see a video of Kweku's dancing, please make sure you check out our website at thirdculturepodcast.org. Trust me, you won't regret it. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and write a review. 
or follow us on Twitter at Third Culture Pod and on Instagram at Third Culture Podcast. Kwaku wrote a beautiful song called Hybrid Seeds that I'll leave you with, but do any of Kwaku's experiences ring true for you? Have you been adopted or have you grown up between two very different families? Let me know at thirdculturepodcast at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Until then, stay you. Here's Hybrid Seeds. We are all universal spirits, seeds scattered, some feeding off mineral-rich soil, and some sending roots deep under rock in search of the nutrients essential for their growth. Some lying on the surface, blown by the wind, crossing huge distances on the currents. Nomadic, the world is their home. When I land, how do I find my place? Force on a face, a mask and shroud, an attempt to blend into the crowd. Silent and shrinking, regressing into the shadows. Or embracing the blessings of my uniqueness, tracing the path of my ancestors and celebrating my role as guardian of the outpost, returning with potent hybridity, open to learn and to share. Here is felt. I stand out even when seeking to hide. I experience moments of anxiety, then fear, then pride. I battle to quiet my ego. My inner warrior wants to attack and protect, but the angels assure me I'm safe, and I take a breath and stretch and move to the drum that resonates, a universal heartbeat unifying eight billion souls. My ego is quiet. I lose myself in the polyrhythm.